I'm John White, and this is episode nine of Stories from the Revolution. Our topic in this episode is COVID-19. Is God accelerating the revolution? It's a rather shocking perspective on what all of us are experiencing these days. As I've explained in past episodes, I believe that we are in the midst of a spiritual revolution and have been for some time. By spiritual revolution, what I mean is that our paradigm of what church is and how it functions is undergoing a dramatic shift. And I believe that God is the one who's doing the shifting. He is once again reforming or restoring his church. And it may be that even in the last few weeks, the Lord is massively accelerating that revolution. Let me explain. My sense is that uh, this coronavirus, which seemingly came out of nowhere, may be something that God is using in a completely unexpected way. No one saw this coming, but here it is. We're in the middle of it. And in this episode, I'll unpack what I think is going on. But first, I want to let you know that our new book, Joy-Fueled, Catalyzing a Revolution of Joyful Communities, has just recently been published. The subtitle of the book captures a critical aspect of the spiritual revolution that we're talking about. That is, uh, it is a revolution of joyful communities much like what happened in the first century. Too often in the old paradigm of church, in which I was a pastor for many years, the fuel or motivation for the Christian life came from what we now call the gospel of knowledge and duty. That is, that we focused on more and more information through great sermons, books, conferences, Bible studies, all of which are good things, necessary, but not sufficient for true spiritual growth. And then we sought to motivate people through an appeal to duty and obligation. Here's what you should be doing. We didn't say it quite as starkly as that, but that was the underlying message. And the result often was a feeling of shame or guilt on the part of Christians. No wonder 65 million Uh, Christians have left the church. For instance, in our book, Joy Fueled, I tell the story of a conference that I was attending. It stands out in my mind. The speaker was standing in front of a large group of people, and he was snapping his fingers, snap, 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 with tears in his eyes. And here's what he said. Every second, as he snapped his fingers, people are dying and entering a Christless eternity. What are you going to do about it? People in the audience were were crying and they were moved by this. It was powerful, but I've come to believe that that way of motivation is deeply flawed. In our book, we explain that the new paradigm operates with a different kind of motivation, a a new fuel, which is joy. Um, uh, it's joy with both God and with others. Actually, it's an old fuel. It's what Jesus intended. 
John 15, 11, he said, I've told you these things so that my joy would be in you. That's an incredible statement that the very joy of Jesus would be in us and that your joy would be overflowing or filled to a place where uh, it was overflowing. And the question is, is that what you've been experiencing uh, in your experience of church? Often our sense is not so much. The revolution then means the formation of what we call high joy groups, where people are deeply glad to be with each other no matter what. High joy groups are what we think the church was always meant to be, but often wasn't. In the book, we deal with questions like, what exactly is joy? There's a very simple definition of joy that uh, answered my questions about this, questions I've had for years. I, I love the simple definition that we that we present. How is joy nurtured? How do high joy groups develop? And how do these groups spontaneously and almost effortlessly and powerfully impact the world around them? So the book's available on Amazon. Just simply go look it up, Joy-Fueled, um, Kindle version and softcover. I also want you to know that I'm working on more episodes on the theme of the leadership solution, which I started in episode five. Lots more to come on leadership. I've also got a long list of remarkable people to interview, like Colleen in episode four, uh, Neil in, and Alex in six, Marty in seven, and Jim and Kent in eight, episode eight. There's a growing number of revolutionaries who are actively engaged in the paradigm shift that is underway. But as I've been listening to the Lord, my sense is that uh, there's more that I need to share about COVID-19 and the role that it may be playing in the spiritual revolution that we've been talking about. I'm not going to present what I want to share with some sort of prof prophetic certainty, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes you hear things like that. But rather, I want to present it along the lines of, of what if? What if this might actually be true? Uh, the perspective that I'm going to share is has been resonating with my spirit for a number of weeks, um, as well as a number of my friends. So you see if it resonates with your spirit. Listen to Jesus, Jesus about it and see if you think it might be true. The implications are huge. In episode five, I introduced the idea of the leadership solution. That is, where do leaders for this revolution come from? And I introduced you to something that we in the Luke 10 community call the 10 to be prayer. This is from Luke chapter 10, verse two, part B. This is a prayer commanded by Jesus. Very simple. Here's what he said. Beseech the Lord of the harvest, to thrust out workers into the harvest. And in episode five, I've focused on the Greek word that gets translated thrust out. The word is ekbalo. On Luke 10, we've been teaching about this, uh, this tend to be prayer for the last 20 years. I know other people have been teaching about it as well. And the result is that there are thousands of people around the world that have been doing exactly what Jesus instructed us to do. They've been beseeching the Lord of the harvest to ekbalo, thrust out, harvest workers. Repeatedly, passionately, 
raising this request with the relentlessness of the widowed lady in Luke 18. Remember her story of coming to the unrighteous judge day after day after day <clears throat> until he finally said, okay, I'll grant you your request, lest you wear me out with your coming. And then Jesus said, pray like the widowed lady, pray like that. What if the Lord of the harvest is now answering our prayers, this tend to be prayer, on a massive scale in a way that none of us, certainly not me, that none of us expected. There is, by the way, precedence for God answering the tend to be prayer in unexpected ways. For instance, I believe the early Christians obeyed Jesus' instructions and were praying this prayer regularly, maybe daily, beseeching the Lord of the harvest to thrust out, to ekbalo workers into the harvest. But did any of them expect that the Lord of the harvest would ekbalo Saul, the dreaded persecutor of the church? But that's exactly what he did in Acts chapter 9. As a part of that story, uh, I love the message, the way the message translates this or explains this. Um, after Saul had been knocked off his horse, blinded, this is a serious ekbaloing, right? Um, the Lord appears in a vision to Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Paul. And there's a, his new name is Paul. And I want, there's a message that I want you to deliver to him. I love the way Ananias responded. It says, Ananias protested, master, you can't be serious. Sounds like John McEnroe. That's what the message says. Ananias goes on to say, everybody is talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priest that give him license to do the same thing to us. But the master said, Ananias, don't argue with me. Go. I have picked him as my personal representative to non-Jews and kings and Jews. And then there's the story of Peter, a leader of the early church. No doubt he was beseeching the Lord of the harvest daily, praying the tend to be prayer. But he could never have imagined one of the ways that the Lord of the harvest answered that prayer through a despised Gentile who was also a, an occupying Roman soldier named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. This was so outside of Peter's thinking that God had to explain it to him in a vision three times. And Peter's first response, remember, the Lord lets down the sheet, it's got animals on it, the Lord says, kill and eat. And, and these are Peter's response is, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. But he uses that to explain that he's to go and minister to Cornelius. So that's what happened in Acts 10. The point is this. Sometimes God does things that, that are absolutely shocking and unexpected to his people. people. Specifically, it has begun to dawn on some of us that the Lord of the harvest may be using COVID-19 to ekbalo his people out of their current paradigm of church. Let's take a minute to review the meaning of this word ekbalo. Balo means to throw or cast. We get the word ballistics from it. The word ek means out, a little prefix means out. So to, to drive out, 
Uh, it's a word that is used of casting out demons. We talked about that. <clears throat> to cast out, drive out, to send out. And here's a definition that has been uh, really drawing my attention recently. It can mean to compel one to depart. Examples of that. Matthew 4. It says that the Spirit compelled Jesus to depart and go into the desert. What's the word that was used? Ekbalo. Then Matthew 21 says that Jesus compelled the money changers to depart from the temple. What's the word that's used in the Greek? Ekbalo again. And now what we are seeing is that people all over the world are being compelled to depart from their experience of church by the government, no less. Who would have expected that? Now, I want to be clear. I think COVID-19 is, is from the enemy. I think he's the one who's behind all the sickness and the suffering. However, isn't it just like the Lord to use the schemes of the enemy for his purposes? That's exactly what we see in the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph, who was badly mistreated and abused by his own brothers, thrown into a pit by them, and then sold into slavery, a slave in Potiphar's house, later spends time in prison. This is what his own flesh and blood did to him, definitely evil. But later in, the life, later in his life, Joseph meets with his brothers. Here's what he says to them in Genesis 50, 20, I, one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament, to his brothers. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good and for the salvation of many. Joseph had learned that it was just like God to bring good and even salvation out of something evil. What if the same thing is going on here? So the virus is evil. But what if God is using this to ekbalo his people from old ways of doing and being church, to compel them to leave, to ekbalo them? Well, the question that comes up is, why in the world would God do something like this? What is his goal? Because what is happening to churches all over the world is certainly depressing and difficult and frightening for many churchgoers and especially for church leaders and pastors. Can you imagine being a pastor these days and trying to hold your church together through online preaching to an empty sanctuary? Um, They're putting the best face on it, but it's certainly difficult. And many churches that need that weekly offering to survive may very well go under. So what is God up to? I think the answer is found in Matthew 28 in what we call the Great Commission. He says to his disciples, make disciples of every nation or people group. God is passionate about disciples. But what is a disciple? Um, I think it's a person in whom the character of Jesus is being formed. Luke 640 says that a student or a disciple, when he is fully formed, will be like his master. So that's what a disciple is at and its most basic understanding. Um, The character of Jesus being formed in us. But what is character? A person's character, good or bad, is what they do spontaneously and naturally. It's not about effort. It's not about trying hard to do something or be something. 
It's what you do spontaneously. It's where we say about a person, it could be even an animal. You know, it's just like that dog to do that. It's just like that person to do that. That's what character is. God is after disciples, not converts or decisions. That's the first step in the process, but that's not his goal. He's also not after church goers uh, by themselves. His heart is for people whose lives are being deeply transformed, whose lives increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. That's his heartbeat. But here's the problem. It turns out that the old paradigm of church isn't very effective at making disciples. Going to church might be entertaining. It might be informative. But by and large, and there are certainly exceptions, but by and large, it's not deeply transformational. Show up at the church building on Sunday morning. Sit in an auditorium. Uh, sing, do singing, which is which we call worship. Uh, listen to a sermon, which actually is a lecture. Um, and if you're really committed, you go to a small group Bible study, discuss a passage of scripture or another book. While listening to good teaching, and studying the Bible certainly have value. They aren't very effective. This is a shocking statement. They aren't very effective at growing Jesus's character in people. If it was, I think we would have here in the U.S., we would have the most godly country in the world, but I don't think anybody thinks that's the case. So why is it that the old paradigm of church um, is not, generally speaking, deeply transformational. It turns out that the answer to that question is in the way that God made our brains. He made us to have what is called split brains. There's a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. And they have very different functions. Somebody said it's like a cell phone with dual processors. They work together, but they have different responsibilities. Our left brain, the left side of the brain, is for conscious thought, speech, strategy, problem solving, logic, and stories. But the right side is for emotional attunement to others, individual and group identity, relational attachments, assessing and processing our surroundings. I've learned a lot from Dr. Jim Wilder about the brain. He even describes himself as a neurotheologian. I've never heard of that before. But he says it's the intersection of uh, scripture and brain science. And his insights have been profound for me. He's written a lot of books, um, which we refer to in the Luke 10 community frequently. But he recently has collaborated with Michael Hendricks, and they've come out with a new book called The Other Half of Church. It's actually not published yet. Um, Dr. Wilder asked me to endorse, to read the book and then endorse it. And that's what I've been doing. And I I'm, I'm just believe this is a really important book. Uh, I'll let you know when it's out because I think we're going to be talking about this a lot. What I want to do is to share with you, this is kind of a preview of coming attractions. I want to share with you a rather long quote from the book that is the best explanation I've found as to why the old paradigm of church is not effective at making disciples and what to do about it. So here's the quote. 
This is from the book, The Other Half of Church. Quote, a right brain governs the whole range of relational life, who we love, our emotional reactions to our surroundings, our ability to calm ourselves, and our identity, both as individuals and as a community. The right side manages our strongest relational connections, both to people and to God, and our experience of emotional connectedness to others. And it also manages character formation. That's our right hemisphere. Character formation, which is a primary responsibility of the church, is governed by the right brain, not the left brain. If we want to grow and transform our character into the character of Jesus, we must involve activities that stimulate and develop the right brain. Still, still quoting from the book, most pastors, churches, and Christian communities are mistaken about how character is transformed. That's an incredible statement. <clears throat> See if this sounds, sounds familiar. In a typical church service, we hear teaching on important truths from the Bible. At the end of the sermon, we are given an application, which usually consists of being told to make better choices. We are encouraged to trust the Holy Spirit, trust that the Holy Spirit will give us the power to change. In small groups, we usually study questions. Uh, we, we usually use study questions on a Bible passage or a sermon. And at the end, we discuss how to apply what we learn. Then we pray and ask God to help us. And Michael writing here uh, in the book says, I have been taught these steps from the first day I went to church. If you're like me, You've seen this pattern in your Christian community, and I would say that's certainly true for me. This is the accepted strategy for growth in Western culture, but there is one small problem. These strategies focus on half of our brain, and it is not the half that forms character. When we neglect right brain development in our discipleship, we ignore the side of the brain that specializes in character formation. Left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrine, willpower, and strategies, but neglects the right brain loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. Ignoring right brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love, but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life, especially during distress. In the left brain community, we are taught Christian doctrine, but the doctrine has difficulty showing up in our instantaneous reactions. We are told not to lie, but we're not shown how to stop lying. We're told to trust God with our money and not be greedy, but we're not shown how. We believe that God loves us and we can trust him, yet our beliefs feel shaky when we are in distress. Michael goes on, I'm not suggesting that the familiar left brain strategies are unimportant in discipleship. Biblical teaching, scripture meditation, beliefs, strategies, and the choices we, we make play an essential role in forming character. We don't grow without developing these left brain skills. However, without the proper right brain relational and emotional environment, our fruit will be meager. 
When the right brain and the left brain work in harmony, character transformation becomes common, commonplace in our communities. End quote. As I've said before, this is me speaking now, every church mentioned in the Bible met in a home and functioned like a small spiritual family. That was the pattern for at least 200 years. Occasionally there were larger gatherings, but the small family-like grouping was, the, was primary. That was what church was called, and the larger group was secondary. That small spiritual family, often called house church, is exactly where whole brain functions can take place. Character transformation, sustainable transformation, only takes place in small, intimate, participatory, high-joy, family-like groups. That's what brain science is teaching us. Is it possible that God would do something as disruptive and painful as compelling his people to leave church buildings and typical church services where we were comfortable? We love the teaching. We love the worship. But is it possible that he is the one who is compelling us to leave? Because he is committed to his people truly becoming disciples, being conformed to the image of Christ that he is calling his church back to being a whole brain experience, both left and right. What if there is a global ekbaloing going on? What if God is compelling Christians to depart from church buildings all over the world for a reason? Not just departing from churches, um, but our reliance upon the large group, pastor-oriented, spectator-oriented forms of church which mainly engage our left brain. Why is he doing this? To say it again, <clears throat> because he is passionate about making disciples. Participatory church, not spectator church, is what scripture calls us to. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, when you, come to, when you come together, brothers, everyone has a word of instruction, a hymn, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. The key word is everyone where people are learning to connect with one another and with God on a heart level. Both right-brained, close connections, heart-level sharing, and left-brained teaching and information. What do you think? Does your spirit resonate with what I'm sharing? If it does, what does the Lord want you to do about it? We don't know how long this, um, this pandemic, this uh, coronavirus, will keep us separated. A lot of people are suggesting it will be 12 to 18 months before a vaccine is developed. Is COVID-19 just a random event that we have to endure, or is it God accelerating the revolution? What if this is a season for restoring whole-brained disciple-making? If this resonates with your spirit and you're ready to join the revolution, I want to share with you two sources, two resources that might be next steps for you. Number one, I've already mentioned our book, Joy Fueled. Notice again the subtitle, Catalyzing a Revolution of Joyful Communities. We could say, Catalyzing a Revolution of Whole-Brained Communities. What if there were thousands of these small, high-joy spiritual families multiplying like a benevolent virus in your city or country? What difference would it make? Joy Fueled explains how this can happen. These high joy communities can function both together physically, 
but also virtually. They work well on a Zoom call. Make sure you listen to our episode number eight for one example of what that's like. Second resource to help you join the revolution, our Church 101 course. This is a uh, five-week course, online course, that's presented to you without cost to you. It's training in how to connect with one another and with Jesus on a whole, on a heart level. Um, it's our best practices. We've been working on this for 12 years. It's whole brain discipleship. You get to actually experience it. We've learned that we can connect deeply through Zoom calls. If this is something the Lord's leading you to, Church 101, go to our website, which is lk10.com, and sign up for a Church 101 course. So, ask Jesus about his perspective on COVID-19 and see if these are next steps for you. This is John White, and I'm glad to be part of the revolution with you.